So what's the point of dealing with the stones, the 12 of the stones I've talked about uh, in these various episodes? Well, as I have at least hinted at, if not actually said, because the removing of these, the cleaning up the highway, so to speak, getting rid of these stones, these issues that people who claim to be followers of Jesus of Nazareth in this country are tripping over, that are compromising their lives, is in preparation for Jesus' return. He is coming back. It's, it's not a theory. It, it's, it's about to be a fact. And so for the next um, five episodes, I'm going to go through uh, what Jesus said about that. So uh, this is about the return point or part one. I want to begin by telling a little bit of a story. Um, when my dad, when I told my dad I'd become a Christian, he was not happy. Okay, no, he was very angry. I mean, being about Jew, it's as if to him I had joined a cult. And so he tried to, he got some rabbis to kind of go after me and, and try to get me back into Judaism. And that was actually a good thing. At first it was kind of intimidating, but their questions made me go to the Bible and, and take a look at what they were saying. And so it forced me to learn more of the Bible and uh, had some very interesting conversations with them. But at any rate, um, he also wrote me out of his will and he sort of had like a funeral for me. I was dead to him. But um, after some years, we, he and I did meet and um, he wanted to talk about th this Jesus thing. And uh, so at one point we did kind of get into a conversation, but to start the conversation, he pulled out his checkbook. Remember back when people wrote checks? <laughs> and he, he, wrote it, he wrote out a check, uh, put my name on it, and signed it, tore it out of, the, out of his checkbook, and pushed it across the little table we were sitting at. The check was made out for $25,000. He said, Gary, you can have this if you'll deny Jesus and coming back, come back to being Jewish. You know, for just a few seconds, you, you, you do know what I thought. <laughs> wow, $25,000. Uh, the house that my wife and I uh, eventually did buy, at the time that my dad offered this, that same house sold for about 30000 Yeah, uh, 1,260 square feet, three bedroom, two bath. Two-car garage is selling for about 30000 maybe thirty-five, somewhere in that range. To be able to put down $25,000 on it, wow, that had made a big financial difference to us as a family. To have a little tiny house payment would have been wonderful. And I actually thought about it. Like, yeah, I could do that. And then because my dad was living in Israel at the time, you know, he'll go back to Israel then after a few months, I'll you know let him know. Oh, Dad, I tried, but oh, I just couldn't do it, so I'm back with Jesus. <laughs> and but oh, I'm also sorry. I already cashed the check and spent it. But that's a bad plan because Jesus actually warns: if you compromise, even to save your life, if you take the mark to save your life, you're done. 
You can't do that. You can't then say, oh, I, I, I just, I didn't mean to. You know, I mean, I did it, yeah, but I, I just didn't want to die. I just didn't want to be tortured. I didn't want to suffer. I didn't want to be persecuted. So, you know, I took it. But, you know, Jesus, I'm still with you. No, you're not. You don't get to do that. And even though I was still a fairly young Christian at the time, I almost did it. But fortunately, I pushed the check back across the table and said, sorry, Dad, I, I can't do that. I actually know of the real Jesus, and I can't just pretend I don't know him. He was not happy. So, what about Jesus' return? I don't know if you are familiar with a, a guy named Edgar Wisenot, I think it's pronounced. Uh, a number of years ago, he wrote a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. In the church where I was one of the pastors, there were several people who really got into this book. I remember one woman in particular, I think she maybe even had begun to like sell her stuff, you know, just because she's getting ready to be raptured. Well, guess what? January 1 came, no Jesus. And so uh, I guess in an attempt to save his reputation, the next year he wrote a second book. Want to guess what the title was? <laughs> Something like 89 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1989. <laughs> yeah, not a big seller. <laughs> so, um, I mean, hopefully you as a listener, you're aware of how many times people have thought, this is it, this is the big one, Jesus is coming to return in any minute now. I mean, the Revolutionary War, what I would call the War of Rebellion, um, had a lot of these elements, the Preachers here in the colonies were saying that the Pope and the King of England were the Antichrist, and they were also uh, the, the heart of Babylon. So there's a lot of sort of overtones of the end times, but it wasn't. They really thought that was that was it. Then during the Civil War, uh, with people on both sides claiming that the other was the Antichrist or Babylon, and there was definitely a uh, an overtone of this is it, this is the big one, this is Jesus returning. It wasn't. World War I, approximately 20 million people lost their lives in this war, an amount that had never even been imagined in a war, making it seem like Armageddon, but it wasn't. It was a bad thing, but it was not Armageddon. World War II, here approximately 60 million people perished, which really made this seem like the end. Ironically, World War II was a little something of the end times, sort of a miniature, for every issue in World War II is going to make a major comeback, like anti-Semitism, only this last time on a much greater scale. But World War II was not the end times, Hitler was not the Antichrist, and Germany was not Babylon. Today, there seems to be an explosion of this and that end time scenario. I mean, you can just, you know, search it on YouTube and there's a ton of videos. Getting end time teachings from the news media, this is really stupid. I mean, stupid. So what if the United States is attacked by some uh, electrical magnetic uh, pulse, you know, an EMP that wipes out much of our communications? So what does that concern the church? It may make life in, in this country difficult, but again, so what? How is that some sign that Jesus is about to return? Because the t cable TV went out? Because cell phones don't work? Because one can't get cash from the ATM? 
truly those who think like this have been infected with the God of, of this world, which has made them weak and lukewarm. As Christians, we should be aware that suffering for Jesus, even losing our lives, is a privilege. It's an honor to do that. Read Acts when Peter and John were beaten. It was an honor, it was a privilege. But most people who claim to be followers of Jesus don't even think that way in this country. We've become very weak. Jesus told us not to look at the news and the current events to discover anything about the end times, other than the fact that the world is crumbling and moving toward the time when he will return. Matthew 24. You will hear, for example, from the media, of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. It's going to get a lot worse. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom up against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. But again, all of these are merely the beginning of birth head. This is not my opinion based on doing some twisting or pasting together of snippets of scripture or listening to the news media or researching the internet. What I'm about to show you is simply what Jesus of Nazareth said. It's that simple. But first, I need to address something that um, some people may have overlooked. The living God has provided general time frames concerning his actions on several occasions. Thus, it's not unusual for him to do that. The first time was the flood. You see, Methuselah, Noah's grandfather, his name means when he dies, it will happen. Well, his father, Enoch, who was a prophet and a preacher of righteousness that was prophesying about a worldwide judgment coming, named his son Methuselah. When he dies, it will happen. Methuselah is the oldest guy. I've lived 969 years. The Lord gave the world a lot of time to repent, but they didn't. And so Noah knew that he had to have the ark done before Grandpappy died. He knew the time frame. He didn't know the day and the hour, but he knew the time frame. Abraham's descendants, the Lord told him, Abraham, would be slaves for 400 years. This is in Genesis 15. Now, he didn't tell Abraham when it was going to start. He didn't tell Abraham when it was going to stop. He just said a time frame, 400 years. Judah's captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah told him, settle down, build homes, businesses. You're going to be there 70 years. Now, he didn't tell him the day it starts or the day it stops, but the time frame, 70 years. Jesus told the disciples he was going to suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And then on the third day, he would be raised back to life. Well, that's a time frame. And as it turns out, it wasn't even three 24-hour periods, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and not even the whole day. So it was a time frame. Yet another example. Jesus, in case you don't know this, this, that's, this is actually kind of shameful if you don't, was not born on December 25th. <laughs> December 25th was a pagan holiday that the Catholic Church, uh, under Constantine, the emperor, uh, adopted when it was doing its usual thing of trying to blend the world 
with Christianity. And so sadly, the Catholic leaders and later Protestant and evangelical leaders even failed to check the Bible. The Bible actually tells us the time frame, not the day and the hour, but the time frame in which Jesus of Nazareth entered this world born of a virgin. And here's a little bit of that account. At the beginning of Luke's uh, account of Jesus' life and ministry, he tells us that Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, or who would be, belonged to the priestly tribe of Ab Abijai. This, and we know from 1 Chronicles 23 which month this tribe was assigned to serve in the temple. It was the fourth month of the Jewish calendar, which is Tammuz, or as by our calendar, late June and early July. The Hebrew calendar and our calendar are a little bit different. They're off by a couple of weeks. So Luke also tells us that after Zechariah's encounter with the angel, uh, Gabriel, that uh, when he had finished his assignment, service time, he would, he, when he went home to his wife Elizabeth, who had been unable to get pregnant, he would get her pregnant. Let's just kind of consider this for a moment and how it kind of must have blown Zechariah away. First of all, an angel appears to him, and not just an angel, Gabriel, one of the top uh, generals, I guess you might say, appears to him. So he has a face-to-face -face encounter with an angel. This alone must have blown him away. But it's what he came to tell him. Gabriel tells Zach that the living God has heard his, his cries for help for years and years and years, praying for, to get pregnant. And yes, he's going to have a child, finally. But there's more. The angel also tells Zechariah that the child's going to be a boy. Now, to a Jewish man, having a son is important. Not that daughters are bad. They're not, of course. It's just that a son is considered a great honor. And having a firstborn son is a very great honor, for he now has an heir and someone to carry on the family lineage. So it gets even better, though. Not only is he going to have a child, and not only is it going to be a boy, but good news, this boy is going to be a godly man. In fact, he's going to be in the ministry, except he's not going to be like a priest like his dad. He's going to have a very specific assignment. He's going to be the person who's going to precede the Messiah, the forerunner, the forerunner to the Messiah. Zechariah must say, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. My son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah with the anointing of Elijah on him? As prophesied in Scripture, that's my son. That's what he's going to, yep, that's him. Boy, Zechariah must have just been undone. Because, come on, it's not like uh, his son was going to have to be, you know, 100 years old before the Messiah came. He knew that at least in some time frame, some time of John's life, the Messiah was coming. He was actually coming. So I believe that when Zechariah's time of service was over, he didn't just nonchalantly make his way home, you know, maybe stop off at Home Depot to buy himself a new drill. <laughs> I don't think he did any of that. I think he ran home. <laughs> and even though he can't talk, remember, because he was unbelieving, the angel uh, tipped his tongue, he couldn't speak. The moment he burst into his house, I'm sure he gave Elizabeth the look. Come on, women, you know the look, right? <laughs> and so, he, he must have given her the look, 
And I think he got her pregnant the first time. I could be wrong, but I think it happened pretty quickly because he was excited. So if we calculate from the time, of course, as you know, Luke tells us that Elizabeth was in her sixth month of her pregnancy when Mary shows up and to tell her that she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. So all we have to do is calculate that Jesus was born 15 months after John was conceived by Zechariah and Elizabeth. This puts Jesus' birth sometime in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, Tishrei, which is our late September, early October. And it's at this time of the year the Feast of Trumpets occurs. Now, the rabbis had taught for century that this, centuries that this would be the season when the Messiah would come. For the whole point of the Feast of Trumpets is, the, is to announce a new beginning. And this feast is made up of three events. Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which reminds them of the wandering in the desert and the final harvest and the end gathering. So, we don't know the day and hour of Jesus' birth, but we do have the time frame of it, sometime in late September, early October. Now, Jesus then says that no one knows the day and the hour of his return, but he did give the disciples and the church, who has ears to hear, a time frame of his return. This is not unusual. I've just gone through several biblical examples of what when he did. So I'm going to use Matthew's account of Jesus' teaching on the end times as the main text because Matthew tells us the most. And to get a complete picture from Jesus in Matthew's gospel, one needs to keep what he says in the context of chapters 21 through 25. For most of that happened on one day. A little bit of chapter 21 happened on Sunday, and the rest of it happened on Monday of Jesus' last week. So here's basically a, a summary of what people call the Passion Week. The first day of the week, Sunday, Jesus had been telling his disciples that he must be killed, but that he would come back to life three days later. So on Sunday, as per the scriptures, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a little donkey. A little donkey was a symbol of peace as opposed to a war horse, like Revelation 19. Mark gives us the detail that after entering the city, Jesus went to the temple to see what was going on. Because the day was getting late, all Jesus did was to take kind of note of the activities there, turn around, and leave. Now, hang on just a second. I need to back up three years. Jesus, the first thing Jesus did on his very first day as the Messiah was not to go to the Sanhedrin, you know, with Starbucks and Krispy Kreme donuts for everybody, uh, maybe introduce himself and form the leaders that, you know, golly gee, I'm the actual Messiah. And then, you know, approach them in a really friendly, uh, non-offensive, non-threatening way. Maybe call out, give some prophetic, personal prophetic words. Maybe heal a few people. You know, some really cool stuff. Nope. Instead, he shows up in the temple, makes a whip out of some pieces of rope, and then suddenly, without any warning, he begins violently and indiscriminately striking people, throwing over furniture, even raging angrily and shouting at the top of his lungs, what are you doing? And turn my father's house, which is supposed to be a place of intercession for all ethnic groups, into a Walmart. Not exactly polite. Not a good way to start his ministry. 
Okay, so now back to Monday, a little Passion Week. It's Monday morning, and Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem, having spent the night in Bethany. Maybe he hadn't had any breakfast, or maybe he just wanted a snack. Or maybe his father told him to do something that would become a vivid, physical, prophetic sign to, that the disciples and the followers, as followers today could easily grasp. And this vivid, physical, prophetic act was to approach a fig tree. And when he saw that it had no fruit, he cursed the tree and it dried up and died quickly. And as for what Jesus did to the fig tree, the disciples were confused. It's like, whoa, Jesus, what did that tree do to you? They didn't understand why Jesus did this, but not ready to explain the reason why he did what he did. Jesus merely tells them how he did it. And he does this by reminding them that he can only do what he sees the Father doing, and because the Father must have told him to do it, he had the power to do it. This is what he's talking about when he tells them about trusting in order to cast a mountain into the sea. However, this is not the lesson of the fig tree, as we'll see in the next episode. Man.